what if the framework by which we did everything began in a conversation of inclusion, as opposed to inclusion being the addition to what if it was the font from which everything flowed? Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. With in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications, GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, the Reverend Darrell Goodwin, who currently serves as the first executive conference minister of the Southern New England Conference of the United Church of Christ. He's also the first openly LGBTQ plus black person to serve as an executive conference minister in the UCC. As the chief vision keeper, Darrell is responsible for guiding the conference and its affiliates to have a positive and lasting impact in the world. He is a member of the United Church of Christ Board, the UCC Council for Health and Human Service Ministries, and the Global Ministries Board. And he brings to his varying leadership roles extensive experience in pastoral ministry, as well as higher education. Reverend Goodwin, welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm glad to be here with you, Anthony. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to, to dive in and hear more about um, your style of influence and, and what you've learned and the work that you do. But to start, I thought I'd just ask, you know, what does it mean for you and for the United Church of Christ community to have an openly LGBTQ person in leadership? Um, that's a great question. I, I think I'll start with the a phrase that I often say, which is representation matters. I think some people change the world around them because they do a series of programs, services, opportunities. Some people can make a shift just because they merely exist. So I think when most people think about a religious leader, particularly in my context, a religious leader for over 600 churches and 100,000 people, they have a certain stereotypical understanding. And usually it's a straight person and a heteronormative relationship with, like I used to say, two kids and half a dog. <laughs> you know, you sort of have to have this particular uh, Americanized version of what we think that will be. And so when I show up in the context or when I show up with my husband, I think people have to immediately shift their whole understanding of faith, what a religious leader looks like, um, what the the input of what they would have gotten specifically in New England might be. Um, and that begins the work of transformation, literally because I walked into the room. Hmm. So I think that's important because in the United Church of Christ, who's attempting to be one of the most progressive and accepting denominations in this country, um, I think who is are, who are the faces of that denomination? Who are the faces of leadership? who have access to lead 
is critically important. So before people even arrive at the church, what are the critical conversations that's happening to shape and create who we want this faith community to be? Yeah. You know, here at Chief Influencer, we're really focused on how leaders influence and inspire those around them. And in your case, I mean, you said it's 600 congregations, 100,000 people. And I know inclusion is a really major focus for the UCC and for you. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about inclusion as a um, a style of influence or maybe even as a, you know, pillar of influence and, you know, what that means for the community that you serve. Um, you know, in a very brass tax way, I would say, in the United Church of Christ, and then if we were to think about faith-based organizations in general, there really is no growth matrix unless there's also a dedication to diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are the only churches and organizations that are growing who centered being open and affirming, which is our way of saying LGBT welcoming, um, have chosen to hire either pastoral leaders of color or women. And in our context, even more, uh, diverse-wise, hiring leaders under the age of 30. Organizations that have made those choices have seen an expansion of membership, more engagement, more people being involved. So when I started as executive conference minister, one of the first, my first meeting with the board, which was a little bit of a risk take, um, and they were asking um, about how we would make sure that no matter what we did with our initiatives, um, inclusion and diversity was sort of one of those pillar points. So I'm listening to this conversation, my first time with the board, and I posited that under my leadership, I wanted to focus on this a little bit differently. What if the framework by which we did everything began in a conversation of inclusion, as opposed to inclusion being the addition to what if it was the font from which everything flowed? And the board sort of went, interesting. Okay, so how? And I began to give examples. So I said, so beginning in the program, when we're developing a service for our organization, we might ask the questions, is this accessible? Is it affordable? Where is it in terms of its location? Who's our target audience? How do we build from there? As opposed to what organizations typically do around inclusion is we build the thing. And then we go, oh, but this might be a barrier for the hearing impaired or, oh, people may not be able to get up the steps, you know, or, oh, we've made it so expensive that this whole demographic can't afford it. And then it's more like people feel you've added them as an afterthought. And I'm sort of saying, if we begin with these questions and everything, then people are as an afterthought and it improves us and stretches us um, and makes us uh, better and brighter. And I'll use this last example. You know, we, we've we often talked about, oh gosh, you know, everything had to be virtual. And that was some sort of a hindrance because it's so much more great when we're in person. While I do agree in the value of being able to be in person, there are folks who haven't been engaged with our critical work for probably the past decade who now have the opportunity from especially rural areas to tap in to this justice narrative in a dramatic way that for a decade they haven't had an opportunity. So we see our online presence now as an accessibility issue, not just what was convenient because we couldn't move in person. And I think that's kind of the shift you have to have to make inclusion a major part of who you are. I just love the way you put that. And it just strikes me that putting inclusion at the center, because I could see why you saying that first people might go, huh? And then as you describe it, what you're saying is let's be people centered, not 
building centered or content centered or whatever, right? Let's put people at the center of everything we do. And the more we can include people and make sure that we're accessible and welcoming and affirming, uh, well, then we're going to achieve our mission of having more people show up and having more people come back, right? I mean, it's kind of seems really basic as you, the way that you put it, which, um, you know, is common sense and why you've probably gotten everybody to come on board with your thinking. Yeah, I think that you said something very powerful, which is the the common sense matrix. I think that all of these conversations for most of us begin um, with the complication. We're thinking, what's the book I need to read? What are the 50 steps I need to walk towards? How do I perfectly mastermind this? I began every diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations with our church in this phrase that don't no one can steal this yet, but I'm calling it the hello ministry. <laughs> and people are just like, okay, what do you mean? And I said, we will learn a book to get the right framework correct, but we will actually know how to say hello to someone. And so if you start in the matrix of, I just want to encounter you as another human being, then naturally some of those other questions will automatically come up. But it's because we immediately approach diversity and equity and inclusion from a deficit model that then it's complicated. We don't know how to do it. It seems like a burden to the organization. We can't seem to get the right funding for it because again, it's this external thing versus, wow, if I'm interacting with Anthony and I want Anthony to feel like he's a part of whatever we're doing, then I start with what does Anthony need to fill a part of this? And then it becomes a totally easier framework, which is just more natural. If you invited people to your house for dinner, you'd immediately ask about dietary restrictions. You wouldn't cook the whole meal. And then once they got there, go, oh my God, thanks for having a problem to be lactose intolerant, <laughs> you know, or, you know, right. not celiac friendly. You would begin if you want to be hospitable with asking that up front. So that's to me, it you're, it is commonsensical to me. It's sort of a basic framework and we're making this so much harder than it needs to be when it's really just about humanity and connection. You're speaking my language because I, I know in your full bio, which we didn't you know read, you love hosting dinner parties. I love hosting dinner parties. And I always like to ask people about their preferences and restrictions because I'll never forget, I had a friend over once and he didn't tell me he was keto and I made mashed potatoes. And it was kind of like, which I was, you know, thought I did a really good job on homemade. And I was like, I would have done like mashed cauliflower or something else because I want him to be able to eat the food I'm making. That's the point of having a, a dinner party. And so sometimes on one hand, people are shy to tell you if you don't ask and you do have to find the appropriate way. So they don't, cause they might have an experience where a long time they felt like they were an inconvenience and no one know, I'll just figure out my way to navigate. And so there's a little bit of that two way street there and making folks feel comfortable um, telling you um, their preferences, not just in dinner parties, but that's a good analogy for it. So I'm sure some folks, you know, we have diplomats, we have orchestra conductors, business people who we've interviewed as chief influencers and recognized. And some folks might be thinking, oh, what a religious leader. But I think the common denominator here, which you have just so eloquently pointed out so far is, I don't know any organization that's not trying to figure out how do I connect with, reach, and engage a more diverse population, whatever that means. That can mean so many different things. Um, but when we look at younger folks, when we look at race and ethnicity, uh, when we look at preferences and backgrounds, and you talked about virtual. And so I really, um, 
am excited that no matter what background folks are coming from, they're going to be able to take away lessons from the focus that you've already shared. I want to bring that into your mission statement because I know that big part of your role over the last several years has been to take this mission and this vision that you all have and figure out how do we apply that. And I know there are others who who ha- it's really resonated with, you know, not only the statements themselves, but the the application. So can you share a little bit about that work with us and and tell us sort of the the journey that you're on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's kind of two parts to it. So I'll say the the tagline, we call it, but really the mission whereby which we work is called living the love and justice of Jesus. So the question becomes in our framework, how do you live this love and this justice matrix? And then faith becomes the vehicle that motivates us to do it. So when you say living the love and justice of Jesus, it's sort of saying this is the inspiration whereby which we do this work. I think any organization could try to live love and justice. And so I think that's the foundational point of how we move forward. The question for me, the the wrestling I've had over the three years I've been in this role, was this was an aspirational statement that a group of people across Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut spent about five years trying to work together to decide if they wanted to come together and work together to form this new organization and believe together If they pulled all their resources, their history, many of our churches are over 400 years old. If they pulled all of that wisdom together, it might create an institution of sorts or an organization that might live love and justice in our complete region. So my work has been trying to flesh out what does that look like in a relevant way? What does it look like in a transformative way? And then what does it look like in a futuring way? Like, can we think about these principles, not just for who we are in the immediate, but what might come down the path? The benefit for me is it means I don't have to throw away what has been, which sometimes when we try to calibrate the new, we immediately divorce ourselves from that which was to deal with the immediate now. And sometimes we have a little bit of futuring about what might be, whereas our framework here is to try to connect all three phases of life, who you've been who we currently are, but then who we dream to be. That allows this constant understanding of co-creation. I, or my staff gets tired of me saying this word of like, we are nimble. Or I like to say our phrase is we are the united church of Christ, but I could like say that we're the uniting church of Christ, which means the work isn't done. Another phrase my staff gets probably annoyed with me about is I often say the paint isn't dry. It doesn't mean we haven't painted. Because I think sometimes organizations get afraid of, well, if I we don't have some framework, then we we won't have a, you know, we'll be a ship with no sail and da, da, da. No, I'm very clear. We have, the wall is painted. We are an un- our organization. We offer services to people. We coach uh, leaders on how to move forward. We literally are helping the institution in some ways live maybe with new life. That's paint, but it's not dry which means if we need to chip away something, we need to paint over again, we need to choose a different color. We have the nimbleness to be able to do that. And to me, that's how you have formative change. For a faith organization to be doing this, it's a complicating venture because people believe, as I told you, some of these churches are 400 years old. They're like, we're good. (laughs) 
<laughs> like obviously what we have been doing has worked because we've made it, we've outlived most of the institutions in this country. And I'm saying, and if you want the next 400, you have to not have the paint be dry. You have to also be willing to toggle with love and justice, which also might mean everything you think you are and have been has to be able to shift towards what is coming. Um, and I think that's the struggle we all are having now. You know, do I build based on today or do I pay attention to that we're in a constantly shifting and changing world, including from demographics to economic realities, to where people come from, to what they understand as healthy, whole and relationship oriented. All of that is shifting right before us. And so how do we stay attuned and ready for that? Over four, I'm saying over 400 years old. That means some of your churches are older than the country. Than this country. <laughs> right. That's kind of amazing. But you know, kind of frustrating for you to say, well, who do we want to be? Uh, you know, we started, you know, before the country was even founded. Right. So it's very uh, kind of freeing in that way. I know one of the areas of focus that you've brought as you've, um, you know, endeavored to bring this mission to life is around partnerships. And I'm I'm really excited to dive into that because I'm a big believer in partnerships and collaboration. You know, obviously chief influencer itself is a partnership of social driver and the communications board and the George Washington University, because we just saw that working together, we would be able to achieve more in partnership. And that's something I think a lot of leaders are thinking about. How do we build partnerships that make sense for today? not necessarily just the partnerships that we have inherited and had for a while. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy um, around that and then what that's looked like for um, your community? Yes, um, I would use two, two questions I like to ask myself. The first one, who are we walking alongside already? And then the why, you know, um, what are the reasons whereby which we've discerned, okay, these are going to be our, quote, bedfellows, right? These are the people we do ministry with. And my second question is, who aren't we talking to that people would even assume it would be weird or strange or odd <laughs> that we would walk alongside? And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, in my first three months as executive conference minister, I directed our CFO to join every chamber of commerce in all of the three states in which we reside. <laughs> and I remember her going, wait, are you sure that like the chamber, like the business or, and I'm like, yes. And she's like, okay, we've never done that. This is like a faith nonprofit, like, but sure. So we joined every chamber and one of the chambers called me and said, hi, we just wanted to make sure you were joining the right thing. <laughs> we don't currently have any religious organizations a part of this. So are you sure? And then they, they wanted to vet this, like, what's your motivation? What's going on here? Which I thought was hilarious. And I said to them, we need to be at the table. If the purpose of the chamber is to be transformative in the communities in which we live and work, then why would a faith-based organization not have a voice at the table? They were like, I don't know, that totally makes sense. Just no church has ever asked us. And so it creates the kind of shifting that I'll give an example, the Connecticut Business and Industry Association had their business day. And here I was sitting on the front row in my clerical collar, sitting next to our state senators and our uh, state chamber leaders. 
what resulted as a result of that is I had a conversation um, with one of our uh, presidents of our chambers in the state of Connecticut to say, what if we did this business day, but with faith leaders? And we brought faith leaders from all different denominations and traditions and everything together and had them have a summit on the economic transformation of the state. And they were like, again, we would never have considered that. But then that that matters. Or I'll end with the commissioner for economic development in the state. She was naming all of the organizations that cr- contribute to the financial framework. And I went up to her afterward and said, well, in my context, I have 600 churches across three states. We often are the place where a person looks for immediately when they move to a town. We are hosting most of the migrant workers who are moving here without shelter or place of residence. And so I might, uh, peradventure, that churches, faith-based organizations, are critical to the economic infrastructure. Met with her team three weeks later. They are revising some of their marketing uh, resources to advertise the state of Connecticut as a great place to live. And they're going to make sure that in many of their videos, they start to center the congregational church that's often in the center of every town in the state. Without presence, there's no invite to that conversation. Without presence, there's no pushing of how things may have historically been thought of. I didn't show up to make that commissioner feel bad, but I did show up so that we might have an invitation to a dialogue that didn't historically exist. I think that's how every leader should be wondering, who aren't we talking to? Why aren't we talking to them? And what do we do to talk to them? <laughs> that's kind of yeah. how I think this. Have you had experiences where you are considering partnerships that might be new and then you realize it's not the right fit because you know you can't do everything so how do you um how do you bring a framework to that type of decision so i'm gonna i'm gonna nuance the, the question with just a little bit of a, a of a complication so there's a historically a historic social justice organization i'll leave it like that that i thought was a no-brainer for the Southern New England Conference to be immediately in partnership with. So I immediately emailed them within my first six months and was like, ta-da, I'm here and I'm about partnerships and I want to partner with you. Um, and they said, well, we would be interested in having this conversation with you, but are you willing to give a public apology for some of the things that your organization has done over the 400 years has been in existence <laughs> in our three states? And I was immediately like, what? And this organization was like, we are so grateful that now this or institution has its first African-American openly LGBT leader. But that doesn't deal with what has happened in the 400 years leading up to this historic moment. So while we celebrate with you, we still think you need to remedy the behaviors and, and some of the unjust things that have happened over 400 years. I use that as an example of like a partnership that didn't make sense in the immediate because what did make sense is that we didn't do the relationship building to then create the pathway for the relationship to now exist. Because for the past hundred plus years that that organization has been in existence, our institutions have never reached out and had a partnership with them. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if I could tell you that there's any organization that wouldn't be a good partner to us. What I would say is we might need to do some healing and a restoration or actually introduction to each other to make the relationship palpable. 
And yes, to this day, we still don't have the set services and or resources that we're sharing. We're still in critical conversation of what a reparation or an apology or an acknowledgement would look like for us to show up as an authentic and just partner. And that's, yeah. a, you know, and that, that was a wake up call because even with the representation and the identities and everything else, I appreciate that that organization pushed back to say, but we want this to be authentic, real, and we want it to yeah. actually be meaningful on the other end. Yeah. Wow. That's uh timing might be one of the pieces of partnerships, right? But right. also you talk about the, the, the relationship building and the work. Um, I know you've even found some other just sort of what to me are unexpected local partnerships, you know, like in the arts and other areas. Do you want to just share a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, we created a program called Faithful Fun. <laughs> and it was a way to ask our churches, like, get out of the four walls. Because again, I think organizations can get so endemic to just their own particular ilk or whatever the case may be. So we made partnerships with the Hartford Stage Theater. We've made partnerships with some of our ballet organizations. Um, I think there are many other artistic endeavors that I think the conference can be a part of, from giving clergy and their spouses uh, or and or partners an opportunity to see a play together and have a formal reception at the theater to a $1.25 million grant we just received um, in compelling preaching where people in the arts are gonna be teaching clergy how to actually create stage presence um, and minister to their congregations. I think the theater folks are like, fascinating. <laughs> and I think the pastors are like, but wait, church is a theater, is it? And I'm saying, yeah. I mean, but for me, that's a difference of being able to think outside the box and then see how those things might be transformative. What's really wonderful is that there'll probably be this preaching revival that's going to be happening in one of our major theaters in Connecticut, and they've never historically held a, any religious-oriented event other than maybe a play or some other performance that may have had, quote, a religious theme, whereas this will be an entire event in 2025 that's also a revenue-generating stream for that theater. Like, those are the kind of things that I think stretch us in becoming the people who I think we're called to be. It's something that you said about um, those partnerships early on that I want to go back to is about getting outside of the four walls. Yeah. So, you know, for I think we have a lot of different leaders, whether it's somebody who's centered in an embassy or a an arts venue or a church like, you know, many of the leaders that that, that you serve are or other types of businesses they've often thought about their organization as being centered around a space or maybe a particular event, right? Like they have an annual meeting or conference. And what we've obviously learned over the last several years is, well, sometimes we have to find ways to adapt and, and to build community and maintain community when we don't have that space you know, available for people to come to for various reasons. Um, and now the expectations of everyone have changed where they don't want to show up in a physical space for a variety of reasons. And you mentioned, you know, accessibility being one of those, but even just, you know, family and personal preference. I'd love to just hear a little bit more from you about that, because I can't imagine any leader or communicator listening in, not dealing with that in some form or fashion right now. And you all are obviously it's probably a major challenge, but also opportunity um, for any church. 
Um, I would say there's two phrases that come immediately to mind. The first one is, I think all successful organizations have to have a cross-pollination dynamic as a part of their framework. How are we cross-pollinating? Meaning we cannot stay, even if you want a grant in this day and age from a federal organization or a private foundation, they're going to ask you immediately, who are your other partners? And quite frankly, they are not looking for the same types of organizations. They want to know who are you looking at? Then the other successful piece of an organization I think is an interdependence. So like, how do you see your own success as wrapped into the success of the entity that may be outside of you? So a perfect example for me would be the city of Hartford and the Southern New England Conference. So if the city of Hartford is trying to think about how to amplify small business owners, and I realize that we have quite a few small business owners that are members of our churches, then what is the conversation that our churches can be having with the city of Hartford to make that relationship mutually beneficial and we're all working towards the same end game? I think that we are often thinking, but you don't do what I do, as opposed to asking, but what's your aim? If all of our organizations, the term I'm most, you know, that's big to me right now is hope. If I got six hope-oriented organizations together to decide how we might speak to urban homelessness in, in, in the city of Hartford or Boston or Providence, we are far more likely to see similarities than if I was like, well, I'm only going to work with churches to do this, or I'm only going to work with certain types of nonprofits. But I might suggest that the Hartford Insurance Company, right, which is a private, you know, multi-million dollar insurance company, also might have a hopeful proposition around ending homelessness in Hartford. So we see a cross-pollination there or an interdependence there that may not have existed if I was only thinking about churches and insurance companies, right? It's like, well, I mean, other than maybe covering the building or, you know, a damage happened and we're trying to make a claim we can't see ourselves as like walking forward um, around that. And, you know, for sake of time, I'll just use one other example. The Connecticut business and industry person, when we were meeting I, uh, initially, when that was one of the groups that was like, wait, why do you want to do this again? And we, I talked about who I thought we could be together. They envisioned, well, does the church believe in workforce development? And I said, yes, I think we do care about whether people have jobs, if they're able to survive and live a hope-filled life. And so the the president of the in, uh, chamber said, I imagine what if one day the both of us are standing in front of the state legislature talking about an investment in trade jobs, talking about an investment in manufacturing, talking about giving jobs and economic transformation to communities that are often underserved, underprivileged, and don't have resources in these other ways. He's like, that would blow the legislature's mind. <laughs> like the, the the faith person and the business person somehow making economic the workforce development important. Those are the interconnected realities that I'm like, yes, why we wouldn't be, be standing in front of the state legislature together. It actually makes total sense, even though business and church don't always seem like, oh yeah, they of course you should do that. It, you know, it doesn't make sense immediately. Uh, Reverend Goodwin, have you learned any lessons about how to build an engaged community when folks maybe, you know, can't show up on Sunday to be there? Because you talk about church and business. This is something that you're both dealing with. I just wonder any lessons learned or successes about this whole, you know, hybrid virtual world. Um, I think 
so I a phrase I, another I have a lot of phrases. I've been I always have good phrases. I love that to to our organizations. It's sort of take the locks off the church, the doors of the church. Now I mean that sort of yes, literally, but then maybe also in this larger sense, we've put ourselves in all of these boxes. My business, my organization, my institution must function like this at these times in this particular way. But if we start thinking outside of that framework, the wisdom that I've gleaned is that it's probably not going to be in the way that you've masterminded and planned it out, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. One of the statistics is the most watched hour of a worship, of a live streamed worship service is Wednesday at 7 p.m. But what does that tell us? If church is oriented about something that happens Sunday morning at 11 o'clock across this country, then we're failing to pay attention to once that live stream is available virtually, it's Wednesday at seven o'clock. Yeah. And so I ask myself, oh, I was actually with the church two weeks ago where I said to them, would you be willing? Like, would you think outside of the box and stop having church on Sunday and move your worship service to 7 p.m. on Wednesday night? If that is what the members of churches are identifying as the point in their midweek that they want to engage with some spiritual practice, are we willing to take the risk to shift ourselves from Sunday morning to Wednesday? Those are the kind of learnings that we have to pay attention to, or the service is now available virtually. So people who need it on Wednesday can have it. And people who can't live without going to a building on Sunday have that too. Are we willing to be able to straddle the line sometime as opposed to just, yeah. nope, our services are Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. And if you can't make it to this particular yeah. place in time, see ya. You know, it, it just shows the power of just asking questions that maybe we didn't used to have permission to ask, because it's funny when you mentioned that one of our chief influencers, um, Monica Goldson is the Uh, or was the CEO of Prince George's County School District, one of the largest Mm. school districts in America. And they created a telephone town hall system during the pandemic for parents and other community members to be able to hear updates and ask questions. And they found that it was either five o'clock or six o'clock on, I think, Tuesdays was very effective because folks might be driving home or they might be um, cooking dinner. But it was a time that was sort of a, common time that people could listen in because all you know they and the other thing they did that was so cool was it called you and said this is going to start press one if you want to listen in and a lot of people who would have otherwise forgot or not they oh okay and they would press one they got thirty thousand people to join these things right. and so but it's funny that that's a totally different world and yet you know we're pretty close on the time that you found and that they found is the time that folks wanted to consume this type of uh, content or information. So um, probably a lot we can learn from one another across different sectors with this type of virtual hybrid engagement in today's world. Right. One of the invitations I have to our staff particularly is the simple phrase, trust fast, fail forward. Mm-hmm. Trust fast, fail forward. It means that if Anthony, you and I are talking and you go, hey, well, what if you thought about that? Instead of me immediately coming up with the 15 reasons why that didn't work historically has never worked and why we wouldn't implement it, we take a posture of, okay, let's start putting the framework in place to let Anthony's idea move forward. Now, maybe we don't, it fails forward. We get, oh God, in 15 minutes of trying to figure it out, there's a barrier, we can't do it. So it failed, but now we're forward because we now know we've learned something from trying to implement. 
I think yeah. we usually just shut something down because it's not what we're familiar with or we're used to and yeah. then move to the next thing. And I think I'm saying, nope, nope, nope. Push the envelope, get out of the four walls, trust fast, fail forward. And in doing that, you'll imagine and receive things that you would not have imagined. You know, my first week of December, my team leaders are meeting with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services team leaders for the federal government. <laughs> that makes really no sense, like in terms of how organizational structure. But the trust was like, what if we reached out to the White House as a conference in New England and was like, we can do great things together. And it didn't fail forward. It actually moved forward in a collective way that we're doing suicide prevention trainings, mental health first aid, talking about uh, the mortality rate in this country. We talked about vaccinations and, and making sure people had appropriate masks and all these kind of things and testing during COVID, literally because we simply trusted that even a church might be able to do something prophetically profound in our community and moved forward with doing it. I think it's just, you have to trust fast and fail forward. Love that phrase. That's so great. Um, I want to ask about just, you know, your role as an openly LGBT leader. I think a lot of leaders are sometimes, um, you know, maybe uh, they don't want to, you know, uh, be very open about their identity. We can think of many successful leaders in the world who have kind of been coy about their identity for various legitimate reasons. And um, I just want to talk a little bit about that sort of the, the risk side of that and your equation. And, and maybe we can even take that into um, the piece that you wrote, you know, after the, the Super Bowl ad that you saw and why you were inspired to, to do that. So approach that however you want to. Yeah, I think the safety matrix of us sharing the fullness of who we are means that we just become more vulnerable. Vulnerable for people who do not have a diversity, equity, inclusion lens. Vulnerable to people who have a very standardized understanding or boxed understanding of who religious leaders should be or who what women should be doing or whatever the case may be. Um, that That limitation can sometimes, when we are not that, expose us to vulnerability. And I've had that as the executive conference minister from enhancing our security systems to having to be thoughtful about the mail that's come to me and all of that. But for me, and not everybody will agree with this, there's an equal risk to not be transparent about who I am. Um, when you aren't transparent, then you allow someone else to create the narrative for you. You allow someone else to write the story, to write who belongs and who doesn't belong. And so you know, in many of in many of my job realities, I'm sitting at the table with other religious leaders who are over a series of churches who don't even believe that my marriage or that I am a valid minister. But the point is, I'm at that table. And so immediately they have to interact with me, like even if they didn't want to, because these are formal partnerships we have in every state that there's a diversity of leadership. So I, I think there's a, a risk matrix on both sides, um, which is why I'm always an advocate for sort of lead out loud, whatever that identity might be, you know, whether this is race, gender, sexual orientation, whether it was a socioeconomic reality from which you've come or a different ideology frame, or if you're neurodivergent or whatever the case may be, communicating it allows the system itself to have its own toggling. If we don't, 
then sometimes we're lacking resources or the exposure to someone else who's thinking, gosh, I would love to be Anthony and have my own media marketing company. But they're like, but I've never seen anybody who looks like me, has my experience. So I should just probably let that go. If I could just pull a thread on that, you know, this idea of owning your story. Um, we had a recent episode with Patrick Salee, the CEO of Vibrant Health, and he um, struggled with alcoholism and he uh, had DUIs and ended up going to jail for a period of time. And he shared the story of when he tried to conceal that it ended up being revealed and and affected him. Somebody, you know, kind of shared information they shouldn't have in a job opportunity. So when he was up for a different job, his current job, he went to the board and said, I want to tell you about this experience I had. I want to tell you what I learned from it and why I think that's going to make me a better leader to serve this community. And they saw the potential, they hired him and he's had a huge amount of success in his in his role and he and he wrote a book about it called the solitary ceo and so i love that you what you share about the risk and reward there of that being transparent and owning your own story because some folks might hear that and go okay well but how does that apply to me because i may not be a member of the lgbtq community or something like that and i think it mirrors the story we heard um from patrick which is a different type of life experience and how powerful it is when you own your own story so anyway just wanted to pull the, that thread there to connect it um for folks who haven't listened to that episode yet yeah makes sense you want to talk about um as we close the super bowl ad that you saw and and what that inspired you to do um so you know after when the super bowl was going on there was a whole series called he gets us um, which is sort of this nouveau riche, exciting, um, I can say this word, sexy type of <laughs> invitation to faith. It's modern. It's using language that makes sense to us. Um, and I have to admit, my first viewing of it, I was like, whoa, this is super, super creative. But then I'm also the kind of person who does my research to then look behind the curtain. And I realized that these ads were being essentially funded by extremely conservative groups that are anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, anti-everything that's not sort of evangelical or fundamentalist. And I wondered, well, people will be attracted to this stuff just like I was and then get into it and it will be what I would describe as a bait and switch. What if, because I hope I'm leading an organization that really does mean many of the things that they're saying in those ads, What's our step in so that if people were to find us, they might actually find the truth of what we're saying we're going to be, right? Like truth in brand marketing and advertising. So we are creating alongside Social Driver this understanding of find hope now. And it's going to be a church finding tool, but really also progressive organization near you finding tool. Part of this is about outreach and a reclamation of faith in a way that's far more expansive, inclusive, loving, and justice-filled. But the other piece is to also add voice in a space that has a voice right now, but people are going to get hurt on the other side of hearing that voice. They're going to think they just found a loving organization and show up at one of the places they're advertising and be told, yes, you can be loved if... And I would like people to find hope without the strings. <laughs> you know, like I think that that's um, we're working with a media uh, mark that one of the marketing teams at Social Driver and one of the folks who named that they're not from a faith perspective per se. And so this has been interesting for them to be working on this project. 
is if I would summarize what I've looked at your website and the websites of your churches, I might say, you offer faith without limits. Mm. And it's been a phrase I've started to use with some of our pastors. Like if you want to create something, if you want to be a leader for such a time as this, no matter what you're leading, can you create hope without limits, joy without limits, love without limits, resources without limits? And I know that for some of those categories, we can't like our minds when you try to think about that. But in our context, faith without limits versus showing up with all the limitations and all the reasons it won't work and all the barriers, which is what we do as a function of institutional growth and development. I think it might be if we toggled that to say, what, what would this look like if we didn't have those barriers in place from the beginning? What a great phrase. I love that. And one of the things I love just from a chief influencer perspective that you know folks should really pay attention to and think about is you saw something and did that research that you mentioned and then you said, well, I, I want to make sure folks realize that there's some disharmony here between the message and, you know, who's behind it. So you wrote an opinion piece and, you know, got picked up by uh, publication in your area and then, you know, really got that conversation to spread. And I think that's a really important message. And even if, you know, you don't send it to a newspaper, I mean, we can all publish articles on our LinkedIn profile, but sometimes that's what a leader and influencer has to do is to, you know, when, when you get that voice, that's like, wait a minute, somebody needs to say something about this. Well, who else is going to do it? Maybe I need to be the one who, who does it. And I don't know if you want to add anything about that, but I know that that um, created some ripples in, in a, in a positive way um, for you and, and the, you know, communities that you serve. So I, I'll say two things. One, it created one negative ripple. And that was that for a period of almost three months, every social media page I owned, the conference owned, anything that was associated with us was being bombed, attacked, uh, resources. It would be, we continuously had to delete, block, do everything on all of our social media. So have to be open to, if you do that, the wrong people might also read those articles and have that influence. But it was free marketing for an alternative to that rhetoric. The second part I would say is, so right now I'm on a board, a board of an organization, progressive, progressivechristianity.org, which is a weekly publication video of Ask the Progressive Christian. I mean, they have all of these things, a, li a lending library, all these things. I became a part of their board because they saw that article, read about it, and wanted to figure out how we can connect. That organization has over 20,000 followers and growing, um, and they're moving forward with a number of creative and innovative resources. We're having a meeting in two weeks about what does the future look like between the Southern New England Conference and progressivechristianity.org, which also manages its own magazine. Never would have happened without me just pinning a little opinion piece <laughs> to say, can we really be who we say we are? And we have some ideas and find hope now that do that. And this other organization, digital organization went, we want some of that. and. How do we connect? And has turned into a board relationship and then maybe some organizational alignment in the future. Well, and what a great full circle example to close on that um, emphasizing inclusion as you know a major part of who you are. Like you said, not just a pillar, but really what if that's where everything starts and writing that piece, 
turn into a new partnership, which we spent a lot of time talking about. And, you know, and so you uh, sometimes go out and find those partners like you did. And in some cases, by showing up the way you want to, you attract those partners and, you know, draw them to you. So I think that's pretty cool. Well, we could go much longer today. Yeah, we could just talk all day. But, uh, (laughs) you know, um, I think anybody who's listening understands, you know, why we wanted to feature you and how much we can learn from your example as a chief influencer. So um, Reverend Darrell Goodwin, thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations on being recognized as a chief influencer. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.